Well, hey, I'm Nevin, and I'm cooking up a podcast. Each week, I'm going to share some new recipes, talk to people about food and cooking, make some videos, and go on some adventures. You can find it all at nevintaylorcooks.com. This week, I interview Matt Lanahan from Sparrow Arc Farm. For the recipe, I'm making crushed potatoes with herbs, and I went to Vermont and tapped my first maple tree. So, for an adventure this week, I went up to Vermont and tapped my first maple tree. Uncle Steve, with the hookup, brought me to meet his friend Tom, who's an old school Vermont maple sugaring guy. He tapped his first tree at 12 years old, and he said he's been doing it ever since then. He just can't not tap maple trees in Vermont in the early spring. Um, so yeah, he let me tap a maple tree on his property, the old school with the bucket, um, but he runs a larger maple syrup operation on some other land with a you know sugar shack and the evaporator and the whole thing. He's already made 45 gallons of syrup this year so far, and you know the season hasn't even really started up there, so they're going to make hundreds of gallons of syrup this year. Um, they got the taps in the trees and all running down and gravity fed and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, really cool setup. Hopefully I'll be able to head back up there. Um, when, when the sap's really running, when I was up there, it was too cold. So the sap wasn't really running out of the trees. So they weren't boiling, um, the sap, you know, the, um, the best time is when it's like freezing at night and then just above freezing during the day, the, the sap runs throughout the tree um, and then you can collect it, boil it all off, boil it down to syrup. Um, but anyways, hopefully I'll be able to make it back up there and hang out with Tom again and maybe somebody else like got another guy uh, that I might um, go up and check out his operation. But hopefully I'll make it back up there and see, you know, be able to maybe do a devote a whole episode to it. Um, and share some videos on making maple syrup and the whole process and that sort of stuff. Yeah, so thanks to Tom and Uncle Steve for hooking it up and showing me around and telling some stories and, you know, hanging out with me for the day. That was really cool. For the interview this week, I talk with the one and only Matt Lanahan from Sparrow Arc Farm. Like, came in in 2006, I think, just, like, knocking on doors, selling his arugula and haricot verts, and he's played a big part, um, you know, reviving these, like, really cool um, heirloom varieties of stuff, and he was in Maine, Unity, Maine, which is, like, way far up, and he was hustling down here and, you know, was for a long time, like, five-hour drive or something crazy like that, like, two or three days a week, Um selling his stuff like his story is just so cool and he's just like made it happen you know like really really passionate and if it meant driving for 10 hours a day to deliver his stuff that's what he did nothing stood in his way he built it up from one acre in unity maine to now he's in Copake, new york he just moved a few years ago and he's got like 200 acres lined up this year um yeah, just super great guy, like really passionate, really cool, 
really into doing his own thing and making his own mark. And one thing that I can say about the stuff that he's grown, I've used his stuff in a lot of different restaurants that I've worked at, but, um, the food that he grows, you know, it always has a a lot of character to it. You know, you know, I, I could always tell, um, when you were using Matt's stuff, his, there was something about it. He had like a touch, like, you know, his radishes are, you know, super spicy and flavor to them that I've never had anywhere else. And his greens are like hearty and they have such life to them. And his root vegetables have such deep character, like his turnips that he sells. And they have such character and unique flavors that I've never really had anywhere else. And I think it's just because of him. Like, I think it's just his energy and his passion that he puts into the stuff that he's doing that just really comes through um, in in his vegetables. He's got this like touch. Yeah, it's him. It's his, It's an expression of himself, like in so many different ways that art is to other people and photography and all this other stuff. Like that's what vegetables is to Matt. And, you know, and I could always see it and feel it. And I think a lot of other people can too. Um, so... I just want to say, Matt, thank you very much for, I mean, he came to Boston and came to my house to do this interview. I know he's a super busy dude and he lives super far away and he was willing to take time out of his very busy day to, and, you know, time that he could have been spending on the road to get home to his wife and kids, you know, and he, he instead gave me some of his time to have this conversation. I am super grateful for that. Um, but yeah, he's a real deal. You know, you could feel like his presence, you know, in my apartment, you could feel it. You could feel it. There was just like energy in here for sure. That was just, um, really, really awesome. Um, yeah, so that's Matt. So, uh, this year he's going hard on potatoes. I'll let him tell you more about that. But after talking to him, I was inspired to do a potato based recipe this week. Duh. And I'm going to do some crushed potatoes, some crispy crushed potatoes with herbs. Um, so I'm going to share that later on in the week on YouTube and on my website, nevintaylorcooks.com. You can check it all out. Yeah. So let's get to it. This is me and Matt talking about all different stuff, heirloom varieties and potatoes and everything. So I hope you enjoy it. Here's Matt and me talking about all the cool stuff. Well, uh, I'm Matt Linehan. I own an operate Sparrowark Farm in Copake, New York. We're a 100-acre vegetable farm. And uh, yeah, we grow potatoes right where Massachusetts and Connecticut come together, right over the state line in New York. We've been down there uh, four years now. Um, we were in Maine for eight before that, but yeah. What was it like start? Like, what was like when you started Sparrow Arc in Maine? Uh, when I started in 2006, I think. I think this. I think we're going into our 13th season next year. Um, you know, I mean, I was 22 and had no money. Started uh, on an acre and a half leased land you know up on a on a fucking mountain got into it you know i mean that first year we grew essentially an acre and a half of arugula and just like put it on an old junky one-ton truck and drove it down to boston once a week and kept pulling up alongside back doors until it's all sold and then went home and yeah it's definitely come a long way from from there so yeah i wanted to talk a little bit about the maybe the 
passion or the interest that you have in kind of like reviving some heirloom seed stuff i remember like the waldeboro green neck turnip seeing that stuff come with the story of the shipwreck and all that stuff so um just kind of like where the interest lies in um yeah reviving stuff bringing people unique products that sort of thing like you could always tell to me when you would get stuff and like part of the interesting stuff i think of being a farmer and working with cooks and chefs was like you could always kind of tell or it was like oh yeah matt grew that you know or like that came from matt and sparrow arc you know whether it was the spiciness of the radish you know like the hardiness of the greens like there's always like a touch there's always like a thing um when I was talking to Tyler too, uh, he had an interesting vibe. He's a trained jazz musician and he was talking about kind of like colors and, and, uh, and notes of music where it was just kind of like, I feel like he feels like the stuff that he gives to people is kind of like a note, like a different note, um, when he forages and finds stuff. So it's kind of like you're involved in this kind of like ongoing. So maybe the like, you know, I get that vibe a little bit with the like reviving heirloom stuff is like, this is kind of like a thing, you know, like this is a connection and a way that gives people something that is new. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's what keeps it interesting. You know, I mean, something, I mean, beyond any like almost necessity to, you know, small growers keeping some of that heirloom stuff alive, you know, cause like, I mean, Waldoboro, Waldoboro green neck turnip, you know, like, um, it, it, you can't get that anywhere. Right. You know, I mean, no one is stewarding that seed except for one guy at Waldoboro high school in Maine. Mm. Like, I mean, that's an incredible, uh, amount of responsibility. If he stopped doing it, it just wouldn't be anymore. It just wouldn't be anymore, you know? And there's there's a lot of stuff like that. It's been in one family or it's been in one town. And, you know, at a certain point, like, people, people die. Shit gets lost. People's basement floods. And sometimes that can be the end of something if you haven't hedged your bet. So, you know, I mean, if we can bring a little awareness to it and, you know keep it keep it interesting then you know we do that and we we splice chefs and so it's like some of that stuff really is super different like i've grown you know heirloom leeks like uh like american flag old varieties and you grow them or you know giant muselberg just for leeks and it's like eh, i i don't really know if that tastes any better than you know like a big leek grown in washington state it's cool that you know you can get giant muselberg but people aren't like willing to pay a premium for that because they're not, there's no difference in like flavor or texture or something like that. But then you bring them something like Waldeboro Green Neck, which is like denser and more flavorful or something like gill feather turnip, which is, or macumber too. You know, I don't grow macumber, but folks down on the Cape and South Shore who still grow that, I mean, that seed is not commercially available. It's held by like four families. It, just because you can get that at the Boston Terminal Market when it's in season doesn't mean it's not rare. It's super rare. Yeah, on a large scale. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's rare because, I mean, no seed company holds a seed for that. You know, you can't open a catalog and open and order seed. You got to kind of know somebody or be willing to reach out to them specifically. Oh, and they, yeah. And they won't give it to you. Oh, really? Oh, no. They're closed off. Totally. Oh. Yeah. No, there's like um, two families in the Cape and one in Rhode Island and they, they, they hold the seed. Huh. And they're not going to give it to you. Weird. Yeah, not be- really. I mean, well, because they, they, they got wanted, the exclusive, Yeah, man. they wanted to sell it. Yeah. 
right you on. Know? I didn't know that about Maycumber turnips specifically. Oh, but if you took a job cooking in Philly and you were like, no, you know what this dish needs? It needs the macumbers, you know, and like, like you won't be able to get them. So let's talk potatoes. How many different varieties of potatoes do you grow? 15 or 20, maybe 20. Wow. Yeah, maybe 20. Um, I don't know what's in the crop plan this year, but because, um, you know, we we do a lot of trialing every year, you know, where we'll be like, well, you know, people are looking for russets. Mm-hmm. Last year we did a big russet trial, you know, so, I mean, we did three varieties. Next, next year we're only going to do two, you know. So um, it changes, but yeah, we've got uh, pretty well got anything you could want. Why do you grow so many different kinds? No, I mean, they all have something to offer. You know, I mean, we grow a pretty large selection of varieties for fries because, you know, I mean, like restaurants, hand cotton fries. I mean, it's uh, uh, that's a phenomenal business for us, you know, because a you know, potatoes are like one of those bulk products. So like some of our, um, fry customers are restaurants that, you know, I mean, they're not, they're not looking to get a beard award and they don't have the price point on their menus to like really support buy-in from local farms to a large extent, but like they can afford our potatoes and they can, they really want to do it, you know, but I mean, you know, some of these places are bars. So like being able to put some local veg, even if it's next to a burger, like, hell yeah, yeah. I love it. We grow um, a couple different kinds of golds and some potatoes are better for bacon. Some are better for boiling. Some are better for mash, you know? Yeah. Then we grow the fingerlings and the blue fleshed potatoes, all that kind of novelty stuff. And the tiny little ones too. And the tiny little ones. The yeah. famous, right? Yeah. Yeah. The world famous petite pomme de terre. <laughs> yeah. It's a little gimmicky because it's, you know, a potato the size of a pea. But, you know, on the other hand, that's what you can't get from a regular potato farm you know you can only get that from a guy who went out there he pulled up the plant by hand and he bothered to like he Shake bothered to save yeah. those small potatoes yeah and then bring them down you know so that somebody could like put together a super fancy artsy plate it's sick because i mean those small the, the petites i mean you don't even have to cook them most yeah. guys are just like confit them in fat and like let them sit and then serve it's totally sick yeah Pretty ridiculous. Yeah, it's good. So, you know, and then um, the other big, like, part of uh, the potatoes for us are chipping potatoes um, for, you know, restaurants that are cutting chips. Making their own chips. Making their own chips because, yeah, chipping potatoes are uh, pretty interesting because they're actually like like a family of potatoes by themselves. And you you can't like buy them on the open market. They're all grown uh, for processors under contract. Right. So that you literally couldn't sell it. You couldn't get it if you wanted to. Right. It's all grown, sold to the people who make potato chips. Correct. Everything. Everything. So (laughs) um, when we started trialing some chipping potatoes and seeing if it was something that we wanted to, you know, get into, and then we brought them to people who were, cutting potato chips in-house, but they were using like Idaho russets, their mind was blown. A chipping potato is so hard that if you actually tried to like use it in the kitchen for anything other than a chip, it would be awful. It's so, so hard and so waxy. It's just distasteful. But by the same token, you take a, take a russet or almost any other potato and you cut it thin, drop it in a fryer, it just splits into like three different pieces. So these restaurants were cut in like real thick chips so they'd hold together. 
and it's not it's not given that great like Cape yeah. Cod potato chip like super thin you know yeah bring them a chipping potato and man people were pumped the world was changed their whole world got changed information is power <laughs> yeah what do you do you do you like to eat a lot of potatoes do you eat a lot of potatoes in the season I do yeah yeah I'm not a huge like bread or pasta guy and neither is my wife and always have potatoes my preferred starch (laughs) yeah awesome what's future sparrow arc look like what do you got going on yeah well uh we're really just trying to ramp up the potatoes um partly because it's good business and partly because it's just like like that's where that's where my heart is you know it's like i want to do more of them and i want to do it better and you know i I don't know you just got to follow your heart sometimes so uh, yeah, we're really just trying to double down on potatoes and do a better job with our with our soil science and doing a better job like maximizing our yields, doing some just doing some good ag, you know. I mean, yeah. at this this point in my life, I'm really just like super pumped to just uh, really drill down and do a better job really just nail it you know what i mean we gotta we gotta make the whole thing uh profitable not just for ourselves for for the people that work for us i don't think that we really as a as a community of small farmers i mean we're not like advancing anything by like having apprentices we don't pay or paying minimum wage or by bringing in even bringing in h2a workers I think that we really got to find ways to hire the people in our own community and pay them like middle class money. You're going to be the potato king. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, that's a sweet goal, particularly because, you know, I mean, we supply a bunch of other farms now with potatoes because getting an organic potato is actually fairly hard. It's a it's a crop you got to pay attention to. Um, so what are some of the particular struggles that potatoes have with being grown organically? Um, well, I mean, the the two biggest are uh, pest pressure um, and uh, profitability. You know, like a lot of like if you're going out and you're ripping up potatoes by hand and just filling buckets and you're paying minimum wage to the people who are doing it, um, it can be pretty hard to like make that work. Right. Cause you know? pota- people expect potatoes to be cheap. Right. Right. And even if you're, even if you're selling them for a dollar, $2, $3 a pound, you know, it can be, it can be tough and it's a hard crop for a small farm to mechanize. I mean, that's like what we've done, which allows us to sell them competitively competitively with people like on a large scale right and like when we sell to another farm it's great for them because you know i mean there's a lot of farms in new england and i mean nationwide um that are bringing like real food to real folks and that's rad but like if they got like 10 15 acres which is like a very typical size you know they got potatoes filling up a large chunk of that land and it's like they can't mechanize it. It's, it, you know, they got crazy bug pressure. It's like, man, just get the potatoes from me and plant Swiss chard over there. You're going to make a lot more money off the Swiss chard and you're going to like keep your customers really happy with the stuff. You go to a farmer's market and I mean, you're going for the Swiss chard. Mm-hmm. You're going for the greens, yeah. you know, because like that's the stuff that sucks at the supermarket. So, I mean, it's, it's all about like prioritizing. 
you know, I mean, really, when you think about it, you know, in a farmer's career, they've only got, you know, right. So many crops, 50 tries to get it right. For sure. You know, whereas in some ways I'm a little envious of chefs. 50 tries is 50 services, which is 50 nights. So let's go deep on potatoes. Start to finish when you buy them, where you buy them from, growing them, what it looks like. Uh, Yeah, I guess just whatever you can share in the process of growing potatoes. So at the very beginning of like a potato's life, it's nuclear seed, you know, which is, um, you know, grown from tissue, you know, by one of the land grant universities, Cornell or whatever. And then it's distributed to seed growers and the seed growers grow out those small tubers and that's like generation one and then they'll grow it out again. That's generation two and the yields go up. Um, And then, you know, generation like three, they start selling it to potato growers like regular farmers like myself. And... But, you know, like the older the generation, the the less it's going to yield. So, like, if you plant, like, generation six seed, I mean, your yields are going to be, like, noticeably reduced, not to mention higher incidence of, like, disease. Right. Um, so... Those grower, you know, we work with um, seed growers in Aroostook County, Maine, and, uh, you know, a little bit up in northern New York above the Adirondacks, um, you know, because uh, for whatever reason, all of, all seed production is like basically on the absolute northern tier of the U.S. Huh. because of bug and insect and disease pressure. I don't know all the details, right. but then... They're shipping seed potato farms in Maine will be shipping seed potato, um, you know, starting in Florida to growers. And then, you know, as the season opens up, it works its way north up like the eastern seaboard, for example. You know, like Delaware has a huge amount of uh, potato growers. Virginia has a lot of potato growers. Um, Yeah, I actually met um, I bought some equipment from a guy in uh, Delaware. It was really, really interesting because whatever it was, I think it was like 60s or 70s, all the potato growers on Long Island left in mass because of the rising land prices. Yeah. You know, they sold sold their farms for housing and whatever, and they, they, they moved like in mass, like as, you know, extended families and as towns to Delaware. At the produce terminal, you can watch the progression because like potato growers in Virginia and Delaware, they'll be digging like red bliss in July. And then as soon as their kind of stock is dried up, the big farms out in the big potato farms in the Pioneer Valley, Massachusetts, they will just be coming online, you know, like Swazlowski and Savage. And then the main stuff comes down, you know, like in October. Wow, that's so interesting. You know, like uh, potatoes that like you're seeing in the grocery store this time of year, they've been stored in a barn. Yeah. They're not like fresh dug. They've yeah. been stored in a barn in Maine or in Western New York or Michigan. Yeah. I saw Idaho. a picture of yours. It looks super cool. Like the Thanks. big crates in the barn. It looks awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty cool. I mean, uh, hopefully we'll get something, you know, the big goal, definitely get a, like a better potato barn, you know, sometime soon. Um up on our on our own place but yeah it's 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 nice you know it's a potato you know potato house is a pretty nice place to be you know when it's like friggin 10 degrees out or you know negative 10 outside and you know you're just you're in the barn you're packing potatoes and yeah you know it's cool but so what you were saying about the seed was 
So then you cut. So basically, you get this after three generations. You get the plant. You buy it. Right. So like, yes. So like I said, all potatoes are a clone. They're not actually grown from a like a seed that's been pollinated and then harvested from as part of a flower or something. Yeah. So so yeah, we buy seed potatoes in, and then we cut them up. Yeah. You know, and 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 that's what we plant. So then the but then. What you were saying too is that the potatoes that come from that plant, mm-hmm. when you cut it up and replant it the next year, or if you were to do that, you would get drastically less potatoes. If you were to do that, you would get drastically less. Um, we do not do that. We don't save our own seed. Um, generally speaking, that's a pretty bad idea. Um, well, because for a seed... For a seed potato grower to sell it, it has to be certified as disease-free. So, like, the guys up in Maine, you know, they dig in October, then they send, te- uh, you know, samples of their potato seed down to Homestead, Florida, where it's grown out by the USDA, and they look for disease. Mm. And then the USDA certifies those lots as clean or rejects them. Um, so, like, if you... If we're buying seed from a seed grower, then it's certified disease-free. And even then, you know, I mean, you can still get blackleg or dickey or, you know, there's a whole range of things you can still get, but uh, the, the the chances are less. <laughs> right. That's like a whole, I mean, I had, that's a whole world. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah, it's totally a whole world. And that's like what I'm excited about, like really drilling down on potatoes is because like the deeper I get into potatoes, there's so much more to learn. There's so many different ways to like do a better job. Yeah. Um, And I just, yeah, I mean, I'm like into it. Like I want to do a really good job. Yeah, I think you're going to do a great job. (laughs) You already do a great job. There's no way you're going to kill it. You're definitely on the way to becoming the potato king for sure. Thanks, man. Yeah. The, I just think people like don't people always just expect that like the potatoes come from the Midwest or whatever all the time. No questions asked, no matter what, you know what I mean? Like nobody, it's not one of those things. It's always like, this is from here or like, this is local or this is from here. Like, it's always just the only thing people know about potatoes are Idaho russets. Like, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. For sure. I mean, Idaho grows an awful lot of potatoes and they, they sell them everywhere. It's a, it's a whole thing. Yeah, love it. Awesome. Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to come. You got a crazy drive. Um, (laughs) Crazy drive back. But thanks for taking the time and thanks for, you know, explaining potatoes, talking potatoes, talking about the farm and your life and all that stuff. Very appreciative. Very awesome stuff. Dude, thank you for having me. I'm super excited about the podcast and everything else you're up to. So what we didn't really have time to get into in that conversation was what Matt means by like he was able to mechanize the potato thing. Like the potato harvester is giant. It's like the size of a house and it goes through the field and there's things in the back of it that dig the potatoes up and they go up on a conveyor belt and the rocks get sorted out and there's a like conveyor belt that goes up into a truck that's driving next to it small farms can't mechanize because they literally don't have enough room or money to buy it in the first place but they literally don't have enough room to turn this thing around once it gets to the end of the field and then head back the other way because they're so massive. So this stuff that he's doing and going hard on potatoes is like 
really, really awesome for someone who started from one acre in very rural Maine. You know, he's achieving some really big things and has some really cool ideas and really great stuff. And I wish him nothing but success. And if you have a restaurant or if you are a chef or if you know people that have restaurants that use potatoes and that's basically all of them and you're in Boston or New York, you gotta be using Matt's potatoes this year. He's going so hard and there's there's really no reason not to be using them. He's almost as cheap as other people's. He's local, he's passionate, he's growing them organically. You know, if you're making French fries, just use Matt's fries. And if you don't, then we're not going to be friends. That's basically what it's going to come down to. The chances of me and you being friends, if you're using potatoes and they're not Matt's potatoes, are pretty slim. So there goes that. But, you know, that's all That's all I got to say about that. Use Matt's potatoes. It's like everybody. Everybody anywhere. New York, Boston. If you're a restaurant person listening to this, buy Matt's potatoes. Next week, I got another farmer on the line. Uh, you might know her. She's another one who's a legend in the Boston scene, but I'm going to keep it a little bit of a secret. Maybe make an announcement later on. Thank you for listening. Hope you check back next week.